Um, and this isn't a current problem. It's a problem ever since the beginning of the biblical story. Q, Cain, and Abel, the second story in the Bible where they, he kills his brother. Um, humans are just really bad at loving people. Um, but we're really good at holding different expectations for ourselves, which are often much more graceful and merciful than what we want for others. You see, we always want justice when things are done against us, but, when we, want, but we want grace when we are held accountable. We're cons- consistently inconsistent. <laughs> for example, this happened to me, I think, yesterday. Um, if you're driving and you know your route pretty well and you know that that light turns from green to red in two seconds, right? And you're like, I need to get to my job. I need to get wherever I need to get. And so you cross that crosswalk line and you're stuck in the middle of the intersection and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, right? People are honking at you on the other side. They're wanting to go through and you're like, I'm so sorry, please, please, I have to do something. I, you know, I need to go somewhere and you want that grace. But if you were the person on the other side, right, waiting, and that person was stuck in the intersection in front of you and you couldn't move, you're like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? This guy, where's justice? Where's a cop when I need one, right? And we do this all the time, right? Am I the only one? I hope not. Um, <laughs> we've all had an experience like that, right? It's hard to love one another, and it's hard to show grace and mercy, even when we expect it almost always, Right? And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that this is exactly what the whole thing is about. God, he creates humanity in the beginning, in his image, to be his representatives on earth as it is heaven, right? To partner with us in this beautiful creation that he's created. But we just can't fully do it. We mess up and squander the opportunity. And after consistent human failure, who does he choose? He chooses the Israelite people, right? Um, A group of people to be the light to the rest of the world. Not so that they could keep God to themselves and and just hold him, but to share to everyone else. The original blessing is not for Abraham, for his own family, but it's to be a blessing to the nations. It's for everyone. Yahweh, um, they were supposed to teach everyone about Yahweh, the Lord of Lords. And again, if we know our Bible, we know that the Israelites were no better than any group of people. And time and time again, God shows them mercy and grace and chooses to work through them, even though they don't deserve it. But there comes a time when enough is enough, right? And God uses certain people to speak on his behalf called prophets. And we've heard of these people, right? Because usually they're pretty out there. They're really, really close with God. And they're used by God to warn Israel about what's to come and what he's doing. And most of the time, their message is something like, hey, hey, knock it off. You're not acting the way God has intended you to act. You're not acting like a true human being, respecting others. You're not doing what God wants. And guess what? If you keep going down this road, there will be a consequence. And God doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to, have, he doesn't want to enact his justice because it's, it's harsh, but he will because evil must be dealt with. So stop, stop, and turn back to God. 2 Kings 17 summarizes it like this, and I'm sorry, I forgot to say this. This is the title of this uh, talk today is Love Who? question mark, right? Uh, The scroll of Jonah, that's what we're looking at today. So if you guys want to park in Jonah, that's going to be probably where we're at the whole day. Um, But we're going to look at 2 Kings 17 right now, where it says, they did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger, speaking of Israel. And this is God's chosen people, right? Let's, let's, Let's understand the context. This is who God chose, right? They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, 
Though the Lord had said, you shall not do this, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stick-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord God of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to eat to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of the plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from the following from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants and who? The prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria and they are still there. Second Chronicles 36 verse 15 summarizes it like this. God did not just let them go into sin. He didn't just let them go and do wicked things. He sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, judge after judge, king after king, and they never listened. Maybe for a short time, they would put on a face of righteousness, but that's all it was. Even though God, oh, because he loved them, right? God sent those men and women because he loved them, but they still never listened. And even though God had compassion on them and wanted to save them from this, they were not willing. All God wanted was for his people to listen to him and to follow his ways, but they don't. We don't. And then he enacts justice, usually by bringing a different group of people, some superpower to overtake and swallow, that's key for today, swallow up Israel. And in that time, if you read the Bible on, you know, and you see the progression, Israel slowly starts to realize their sin and they repent eventually, right? It's a repetitive cycle. They mess up, there's a consequence. They repent, God saves them. And then the cycle begins again. These prophets were always trying to save Israel from itself, given the challenge that Israel needs to turn back to God and to follow his ways. And in the midst of these prophets lies one of the coolest, most unique stories in the Bible, the story of Jonah. Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets that should be on your uh, sheet today and the next little point thingy. Um, he is one of the 12 minor prophets of the Nevi'im, and unlike the other minor prophets where the books are the words that God gave to the people, to the prophets, the book of Jonah is a story about, about a prophet. Um, and it has a setting, it has characters, uh, a plot, and themes. It also relies heavily on literary devices such as irony, exaggeration, and humor. So we can laugh a little bit today. Um, everything is super dramatic in the story, super dramatic, and it's supposed to be. It's unique from all of the books of the prophets, and there's a reason for it. Now, I know most of us know the story of, the Jonah, of Jonah because of what? The big fish, the whale, whatever, right? It's technically a big fish, just to let you guys know. It never says whale. But 
Unfortunately, the fish, ironically, is like the smallest part of the story, even though the fish is huge. You see, the story of Jonah, as previously stated, is best summarized by this. It is biblical satire that critiques the heart of the Israelite people. It discovers the true heart and character of God. And in conclusion, it teaches us about ourselves in the community of Christ today. And it asks us if we really actually love others around us, even though they might not deserve it, even if they're our enemies. And even though I might be in, quote-unquote, better standing with God than them. Now, we could spend weeks on the story of Jonah. I would love to just have a week each week dedicated to one chapter, but it's not going to happen um, anytime soon. So we're going to try to get through everything today. Um, but I encourage you to read it again and again and let it work on you. It's definitely shaping me. It's definitely showing me a lot that I need to work on in my life. And I also wanted to say that a lot of my studying and knowledge from this book comes from uh, Dr. Tim Mackey, John Collins, and the Bible Project. Um, they're really great, a really great free resource that you guys should check out. Um, so please check them out. So let's get into Jonah. Let's do it. All right. There's actually two ways of looking at the story. And as an actual, it's one is as an, as an actual historical account. Okay. That's one, one way you can look at it. Um, that everything happens in the story historically did happen and was passed on down. Or that the story is a narrative parable that uses real historical figures and places. And if you have a problem with that, you know who did that all the time? Jesus. <laughs> okay. Um, so whether we think this, of this as a historical account or a parable narrative, it doesn't really make a difference. But the one thing that we know for sure is that Jonah is a real character. We know that God is real. And we know that Nineveh the cap was the capital of Assyria, and that was a real place. Okay. Jonah is, recently, is previously mentioned in the Bible, and he's not put in good light. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we see that Jonah prophesies favorably for a horrible king named Jeroboam II, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The king wanted to use military force to expand his kingdom, and although it says that it was in accordance with God through the prophet Jonah, it says this in the Bible, the story continues on with God not being pleased with this at all. And additionally, the prophet Amos, in Amos chapter 7, speaks against Jeroboam and what he does and prophesies the downfall of Israel by the hands of who? The Assyrian Empire. So Jonah isn't the best prophet, okay? He seems to be more concerned about being liked by the king, by human beings, than he does serving God. With that background in mind, let's go to the story. Jonah 1 starts off with this. Let's, so if you guys have your Bibles open, we're starting at the top of Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down in, or some of your translations might say, boarded it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, the first thing is, this is the first thing. Most books of the prophets start off with some form of, the, the word of the Lord came and said this, right? That's how a lot of the prophets start off. So we know that this is part of the prophets, but it's much different because it's about, as I said previously, it's about the prophet rather than the prophet's discourse or poetry. Then it says the name of the prophet, who is who? Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now you guys should laugh. Can we all laugh, pretend to laugh? Ha ha ha, right? Okay, because if we were Hebrews and we grew up knowing the names, we would laugh because this is funny. It's funny. Why is it funny? Because Jonah's name in Hebrew means dove. 
And his father's name means true or faithful, right? And what does a dove stand for? Innocence and purity, right? But based on what we know about Jonah so far, he seems to be quite the opposite of innocent and pure. So we have a pure man who is a son of truth and faithfulness, and could this be farther from the truth? We should be laughing, right? Like I just said, yeah, right. There's no way. And guess what? Jonah ends up being the most faithless person in this story. Yes, it is funny. And again, this is satire. This is supposed to be different. This is the question. It's supposed to help us question the status quo, give us room for reflection and critique. Additionally, in the story, we see some literary art that shows us that Jonah is going down. And this is, this is very important, right? The Hebrew authors never write a word without purpose. There's a purpose for this, right? So the story says that he's going where? Down to Joppa. And he finds a ship going to Tarshish, which is the furthest point from Nineveh that you could possibly go on the ancient map. Literally, God says to go to, uh, he says to go to New York City and he goes, he gets on the first plane to San Francisco, right? Like there is the furthest point of the world that he can get to, Jonah goes, right? And this is, um, and then, you know, once Jonah found the ship and he's going to Tarshish, he goes what? Down into the ship. He's literally going down a path that he shouldn't be. He knows better, but chooses to do the opposite. And if we're alive, if we were alive during the time of this story, we'd know that Nineveh is a sketchy, sketchy place, right? They were brutal. There's stories of, about the people in Nineveh overtaking other cities. And what they would do is they would gather the leaders of those cities and skin them alive in front of their people and then deport them back to Assyria. They're nuts, right? But that's not why Jonah didn't want to go. And you know, I grew up thinking that that's why Jonah didn't want to go. Why would I want to go to a place where they'll probably kill me? But that's not why. You see, Jonah doesn't want to go because he hates Nineveh. He hates them. There's a lot of clashing between Nineveh and Israel. And guess what? He knows without a doubt that God will save them. And he can't stand that. It kills him inside to the point of him completely disobeying God because he doesn't want others to be saved. So far, does he seem like an innocent man who is a son of truth and faithfulness? Not at all. It gets worse. He runs away from God after God calls him to go to Nineveh and then we learn about what happens on that ship. Right, let's continue. Verse four, however, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea. Everything's great, right? A great wind and a great storm so that the ship was about to break. The sailors became afraid and every man cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone, what? Down or below into the stern of the ship and had laid down and fallen as sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. You see, the sailors had the right idea. They knew, they're professional sailors. They know that this storm, whatever's happening is not normal. There's a deity responsible for this and they knew they were going to die. So what do they do? They do a shotgun prayer, right? I'll pray to my God, you pray to your God and whoever, whatever God we pissed off, hopefully we'll, 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 they'll be like, okay, and then they'll stop, right? And, and so they're just saying them all to all the gods, right? They're, they're praying though. They're, 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 they're hoping for safety. And then they go and find Jonah, who was what? He's asleep. He's down on the bottom of the ship. Remember, he's down. Not a care in the world. And they're like, dude, call on your God. We're about to die. 
You see, Jonah is not just physically asleep. He's, and this is the first point of today, he is spiritually asleep. He would rather run from what God has planned for him, run from the challenge to grow and be more like Yahweh than be inconvenienced or do something that he doesn't want to do. He's asleep at the will, just going through the motions, not really involved or passionate about God and God's doing. And as much as we can sit here and critique Jonah, because that's all I want to do, and his irresponsible response, we have to admit and see that we are just like him. Running away from God, from what he has in store for us, or what he wants from us, because what? It might inconvenience us or put us in an uncomfortable situation where we love our enemies. Look carefully at how the captain responds to the storm. I want us to check this out. The sailors end up asking Jonah to pray to his God, and then the captain says, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. This is a micro version of what's to come in Nineveh, that God will save anyone who calls out to him in humble submission and turn from their ways and toward, toward, towards his ways, no matter who they are. Cry out, it's not here. Okay. <laughs> These were the sailors' church, not prophets, yet they had the right response. So let's continue. Verse seven. And each man said to his mate, come on, let's cast lots so that we may find out on whose account this catastrophe has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. How down is Jonah? He's so down that he doesn't even have the guts to tell them that he's the reason for the storm. They have to cast lots until he comes clean. Then they say to him, verse eight, tell us now on whose account has this catastrophe struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So I said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord of heaven, God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely afraid. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So when the crew on the ship asked Jonah what his occupation is, he says that he fears the Lord. Laugh, <laughs> right? The God who made the skies, the sea and the land. And can you imagine what the crew's thinking when he says this? They're like twitching, like, What? You worship the God who made and controls the seas. You ran away from him and you came with us in the sea? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Right? <sighs> and you can, can you imagine when, when Customs is, right? He's going to the board. What, what is your business, sir? Why are you going on the ship? Oh, I'm running from the presence of God. And they're like, oh, okay, whatever, you know, whatever. But then they're like, wait, that's the God that controls the sea? Oh man, right? So Jonah, is, he's so selfish. He's so, he's so self-induced so down in sin that he doesn't realize that the effects of his sin affect everyone around him, right? And ain't that the truth with us today? You know what? I, I, I think the youth kids would say this. I argue most of the time that our sin actually affects others around us more than it affects ourselves. I really do. So let's go back to the story. Or, so Jonah, you know, so Jonah puts his, his sin, puts everyone at the ship in danger because it runs away from God who controls the land, the sky, and the sea. Verse 11. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you because I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. This reminds me of a comic book. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. And everyone, this is the coolest part, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Your will be done, not ours. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea. The sea stopped its raging. 
God does control the sea. Then the men became extremely afraid of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord designated a great fish, not a whale, a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. So did you notice one thing missing from Jonah? He never apologizes, right? Um, He never apologizes to the crew. He never apologizes to God. And, you know, I wonder what would have happened if Jonah said, Lord, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. I will go to Nineveh. I will do what you have asked for. But he doesn't. In fact, Jonah would rather die by being thrown into the storm than apologize or go to Nineveh. You see, Jonah thinks he's running for his life. Get this. But in reality, he's running from the greatest life he could ever imagine. A life filled with God's grace and opportunity to do wonderful, amazing things for the Lord. Another thing that we see is that Jonah says he fears the Lord, right? But these are just mere words. Who actually fears God in the story so far? The sailors. They pray and submit themselves to God. They acknowledge that he is in control and say, not our will, but your will be done. And then they offer sacrifices to him afterward. Again, everything in the story is, it's just, it's flipped upside down. As Jonah's in the sea, I mean, he's supposed to be gone, right? He throws someone in the sea in a storm like that, they're dead. Done. But God sends the great fish to swallow up Jonah. And once again, we should see the significance of this. Why? Because Jonah has personified Israel as a whole group of people. The Israelites. Who were given the word of God, and yet they squander the opportunity to partner with him. And as a result, as Israel goes down to the bad places in sin, God says, hey, another group of people will come and what? Swallow you up. Just as Moses' serpent swallowed the serpent of Pharaoh, just like the water swallowed up Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, and just like all the prophets warn, hey, Israel, you will be swallowed up. So point number two is in the belly of the beast. You see, it's in the belly of the fish in the depths of the sea where Jonah is at his very lowest. He cannot go any lower. He's at bikini bottom, right? And it's here in the lowest of lows where God's grace and mercy is most magnified. And through death, or in this case, the belly of the beast, metaphorical death, almost death, God works and he works on Jonah. And this should remind us of Jesus. Jesus even mentions Jonah when he says that for just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, not whale, uh, the son of man will also be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights too. Just like Jonah's almost death, through Jesus's actual death and his resurrection three days later, God's mercy and grace overcomes this the power of sin, the powers of evil, and through that death and rebirth, right, when he comes to life, resurrection, new life can begin. Life that, unlike Jonah, but like Jesus, is others-focused, shows impartial love to everyone and truly cares for people, even our enemies. One thing that I've noticed throughout the Bible is that God seems to work most in the belly of the beast than in times of peace. So in the belly of the fish, Jonah finally prays to God And finally, our main character has some kind of redeeming qualities, right? He's been a jerk so far, but again, he's us. In the fish, he prays this beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful beautiful poetry. We're not going to read the whole thing, Um, but I don't know about you. If I was in the literal belly of a fish, I wouldn't be writing poetry. (laughs) Um, That would be the furthest thing from my mind, but he does. And in this poetry or this prayer, he doesn't really apologize. He He never apologizes, Jonah, but he acknowledges this paradox that death, through death, he will become alive, right? That through God's judgment, because God's judgment only comes because of love, he can be free. 
Jonah says in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, if you turn the page or look down, whatever you're at, for you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the current flowed around me. This is hard for us to swallow because he literally says that God is the reason why he's in the belly of a fish, which is true. Jonah did do some things to get himself there, but God did send the fish um, to intervene, right? The fish was a tool used by God to bring Jonah out of the sleepwalking that he was doing. And again, it's a paradox because God's love is the reason why we have consequences. To sit idly while sin prevails and evil prevails wouldn't be a God of love. It would be a God who doesn't care. But because he cares deeply, he has to deal with us in a way that will make, wake, that will awake us from our spiritual slumber. And Jonah wakes up from his slumber in the fish's belly. He continues to say in his prayer in verse 6, but you have brought up my life from the pit, Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who are followers of worthless idols abandon their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Again, no real apology, right? But at least he's acknowledging the grace of God. And guess what? He accepts the grace of God, no problem. He's completely fine with God showing him grace and mercy. And it's in this moment that Jonah's true character is revealed. But we'll get to that a little later. God then commands the fish to vomit up Jonah into the dry land. And here's where things get fun. Point three is eight life-changing words. In chapter three, it says that, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it. Proclaimed to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. Again, big city, right? Everything's big in this, in this, in this book, right? A three days walk. Okay, so round two. Let's try again. First time didn't go so well, but Jonah seems to have woken up and is ready to do what God has asked. So he goes to Nineveh, right? And it says that Nineveh was a huge city. Huge, right? Um, everything in the story is huge. Huge fish, huge storm, huge city. And if you're, um, if you're alive then, you'd know that this is, I mean, it's, it's accurate, but there's some exaggeration here, right? So let's look at verse four. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk. How many days walk was the city? Three days, right? But he goes one day's walk and he cried out and said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So first, if this journey was a three days walk and he only walked one day, he didn't even go through the whole city. And then he says, only an eight-word sermon, which is actually only five in Hebrew, okay? And Jonah doesn't mention Yahweh. He doesn't mention their sin. He doesn't mention repentance. Like, what the heck, right? This reminds me of my parents. You know, your parents ask you to clean your room and you throw everything in the closet and it's like, it's clean, right? But it's, it's like, yeah, you did it, but did you really? I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Jonah couldn't have been, like, he couldn't have done any less to share God's message to them. He does the absolute bare minimum. And after God just saved him from the belly of the fish, like, come on, come on, dude. You just got saved out of the belly of the fish and you're going to go in there and give him the bare minimum effort that you've ever given anyone in the face of this earth. But how amazing is the grace of God and his mercy? It's so amazing that even in Jonah's inability to fully convey the truth, God still uses him. The story continues after this eight-word sermon. Uh, verse five. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Whew. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest 
the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, right, this, this went viral. This one day's walk and this eight-word sermon went viral, that it reached the king. And he got up from his throne, removed, himself from, removed his robe from himself, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the dust. And he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no person, animal, herd, or flock is to taste anything they are not to eat, drink, or drink water, but every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth, and people are to call on God vehemently, and they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, they, that they turned from their evil way, God relented on, of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. So he did not do it. Wow. Anyone that ever tells you that God is our God that we serve is a God who just wants to zap every human being off the face of the earth, that is the furthest thing from the truth. You just don't want to read the Bible the way it was written. It's amazing. It's powerful. They didn't even hear the full message. They didn't even hear God, men- they didn't hear the, um, they didn't even hear God mentioned from the man of God. Yet they still believed and turned from their ways and turned toward God in full submission. This is so powerful. It's scandalous, right? It's scandalous. How could God save the most violent, oppressive people in that time who, a few years later, are going to overtake Israel? Because God wants all to come to him and not to perish. But we have to accept that invitation into the family of grace and love, changed by the Spirit to be more and more like him. The sailors did it. The Ninevites did it. Heck, even their pets, the animals did it. But God's own prophet? The man of God, he still didn't get it. You see, if the story ended here, right, the story ends with this massive conversion of 120,000 plus people in Nineveh, it would be the greatest evangelism tour ever known to man. Jonah would have seen, he would have been seen as a hero and a faithful man of God and most likely would have restored his reputation, but the author doesn't end the story there. It continues. And chapter four is always missing from children's Bibles, just to let you guys know. And chapter four, people don't even realize exists because it's tough. It's a tough, tough chapter to read. In fact, um, it's so dark and sad. I think people purposefully don't read it. But it reveals and reflects the true nature of the Israelite people and as a whole, the current followers of Christ today. So point four is, I got a little funny with this one. Sinners saved and the prophet played. Chapter four says, uh, let's go to chapter four. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Jonah tried over and over again to sabotage the mission of God. He tried, he tried and tried and God just wouldn't let him fail. And now he's ticked off. I can hear the words of DJ Khaled saying, Jonah, you played yourself, right? Or the famous meme that says, task failed successfully. <laughs> right? It's funny, right? It's funny. I mean, Jonah doesn't think it's funny. He's pissed, but it's funny, right? It's funny that everything that he tried, God said, oh, I'm going to use it for my glory. And then he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I had said when I still was in my own country? Here it goes, right? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish since I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy and one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Okay. 
Why did Jonah want to go to, not want to go to Nineveh? It wasn't because they were scary people, right? Or if you guys watch the, the Veggie Tales, they slap people with fish, right? That's what they said, right? It was not because they were the scariest group of people on the planet. It was because he knew that God would save them. He knew it. He knew it. God, you've always been like this. You're still like this. You're, you're going to be like this. You're, you're always like this. You're going to save the people that don't deserve to be saved. I know it. And how did he know? Because Jonah's a Bible nerd. He grew up on the scriptures. And he quotes this quote, right? A God compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abundant mercy. You should know this because we went over this a couple months ago. He quotes from Exodus 34, in which God says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abound in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. We, you know, we went over this a month ago, I said in the youth group, it's the most quoted, or it's one of the most quoted verses in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It's used, quoted all, all the time, not in its fullness all the time, but there are sections where it's quoted. It's quoted all the time. And um, it happens, this, 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 this verse where God actually shares, it's the first time in the Bible God actually shares who his character is to his people. Um, it's right after the golden calf story, right? Where he's ready to smite Israel. <laughs> Uh, because they're, they make a golden calf after literally he gave them the Ten Commandments and the first two are don't make any graven images and don't have any of the gods before me. And they, they ruined the marriage vow right, right on the day of the wedding. And uh, God's like, I'm done with you. And what does Moses do? He says, Lord, take me instead. He intercedes, right? He intercedes, he tries to save them. And God says, you know what, John, um, Moses, I'll do that because this is who I am, right? And so the context of this Right? And he, he, uh, God eventually does restore the, the covenant with Israel because of his grace and mercy. Right? And this is all relative to the story. Jonah knows the character of God, and it angers him that God would have compassion on people that are so wicked. But he fails to see that he has been sinning the whole story. The whole story, Jonah's the one that's been messing up. He fails to see that he deserves a consequence of God just as much as the Ninevites do. He, he doesn't even think about the fact that if God had actually went with the plan, he wouldn't even be there. But he's blind because he thinks that he is special because he thinks he deserves God's love more than them. Let's continue. But the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? The Lord's like, hey, let's talk about this. Let, let, let's, let's have a discourse. I want, I want to know what you're feeling. I want to talk. I want to help you. And Jonah goes like the standard teenager kid, talk to the hand. Doesn't even respond. It says that he left the city, verse five, sat down east of it. And there he made a shelter from himself and under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. He's waiting for the mighty smackdown of God. So what does God do? We're gonna try this again. The Lord designated a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to relieve him of his discomfort. And it's not the plant that you're thinking of, so stop it. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. Up until this point, Jonah has been pretty emotionless about everything, right? He doesn't really care about anything, especially the people of Nineveh. But he loves this plant that God gives him. He loves it. And God designated a worm when dawn came the next day. Yes, you were laughing. It's funny. <laughs> um, God designated a worm, a, a small worm, right? So everything's big. And then there's this medium tree. And then there's a small worm. Uh, when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he bathed with his, all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Oh, Jonah, so dramatic. Reminds me of a little kid, right? Just, oh, everything sucks, right? Um, but God said to Jonah, again, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant, Jonah? 
So now he adds the plant, right? The first he's like, hey, why are you angry? Now he's like, why are you angry about the plant? This is how cool God is. And Jonah says, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. Then the Lord says, you had compassion, which is not the greatest translation. It should be, you have emotion, you have passion, you have a heart on the plant, for the plant, for which you did not work and which you did not use to cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not also be passionate and loving and care about Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people, human beings who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as their pets? And then it ends. Have you guys ever read chapter four before? Just be honest with me. Have you guys ever read chapter four? Okay, cool, cool, cool. It's great. You see, Jonah only cares about himself. He is so filled with emotion about a small plant because it helps him, but he could care less about the 120,000 plus people being disciplined by God. In fact, he'd rather die. He'd rather die than see them be saved. And God's like, Jonah, dude, if you can care about a stinking plant that you didn't even have a part of, how much do you think I, the creator of everything, care about those people? Oof. Are they less deserving of my mercy and grace than you? Because you know my commandments, you know who I am. Yet they still changed and turned away from their sin and they followed Jesus teaches a similar story. In Luke 15, Jesus uses three parables, one about the lost sheep, one about the lost coin, and one about the lost son. And in the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, we know this today as the prodigal son, Jesus says that a man had two sons, right? The youngest one, which is representative of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and the older one, who is representative of the Jews, the Israelites. And the youngest asked for his inheritance before his father's had passed, which is basically saying, screw you, I hope you die, I want my money, um, which is super disrespectful, of course. And he took his inheritance and he squandered it on wild things and was eventually broke, dirty, and hungry. He then remembered, oh, he then remembered that uh, <clears throat> his father's servants never hungered. They were always taken care of. And since he came to his senses, he went back to his father's house. And as he's on his way, this is, this is powerful. His father is looking for him. And he sees him. And the father runs to him. Filled with compassion. And the son tells his father, Father, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says, that's hodgepodge. That's, that's, no, no, no. Quick, let's celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he is found. Meanwhile, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf, you throw this elaborate party for him. My son, says the father, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate 
and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. This is the story of Jonah. This is the story of Israel. And this is our story. You know, Israel always had their noses held high. They, they, they thought they were it because they were God's chosen people that they were the only ones worthy of his grace and his mercy and his blessings. And to them, non-Jews, being part of the blessing was completely scandalous and wrong. And God is standing there like, no, you're missing the point. I want all of humanity to be part of my family. Jesus is like, I want all the non-Jews to be part of the kingdom of God, regardless of their past, regardless of their status, their race, regardless of what they look like, what they wear, they can be in the kingdom of God as long as they love me, love others, come to their senses and turn away from their sin. And guess what? That means even our enemies, the people that have wronged you, who hate you, they're included in that. Israelites, Pharisees, religious people, they don't let the, don't let the fact, don't let the fact that you got it all together distract you from the fact that you need Jesus just as much as the person next to you. You see, Jesus has a lot to say about these things. In Luke 6, he says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other one also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them, them do to you. This is really, really quoted. This next part is not. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you love those, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And you know what Jesus does? Like Jonah, Jesus was on the mountaintop, right? And I, I'm assuming G Jonah was on the mountaintop, because if he wants to see what's going to happen in the city, I don't think he's going to be on a flat land, right? He wants to, be, he wants to get that aerial view. And Jesus is on a mountaintop, and instead of God giving him a tree to give him shade and relief, Jesus is put on a tree of pain, turmoil, and death. And while he's on that tree, he's not thinking about how, how the people who are killing him deserve death, deserve the wrath. You know what he's thinking? He's thinking of others. He tells John to take care of his mother. He cares about his mom. He tells the rebel next to him, right? What does he say? Today you'll be in paradise. And what does he tell his father? Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is the savior of the world. That is the true human one. You see, the point of the Jonah story is to make us critically think about how we are acting in the world with God and with others. It's a story that is working to expose the worst tendencies that tend to form in God's covenant people, which is pride, hard-heartedness, judgmentalism, tribalism, selfishness, and an inability to grow and change and let God's grace actually surprise me in what he's doing and what he wants to do through me. And I could end with some steps on how to love your enemies, but you know what? I'm still working on that. And I don't have all the answers. The only thing I can really say 
is that we need to ask God through his spirit to give us the strength to act counter to our natural inclination to hate our enemies. And I believe with true submission, he will give us the strength to do so. I also think the Bible doesn't work in a program styled five steps to love your enemies. It does what the story of Jonah does. It gives you a story that is easy for us to read somewhat and be like, cool, it's a funny story, whatever. But if we actually meditate on it, we'll see that the story isn't really about Jonah at all. It's about me. It's about us. Are we going to recognize our enemies as human beings created in the image of God or demonize them? Make them untouchable to his grace and mercy? Remember, we're all human. We all have the same brokenness. We all mess up. If you're mad at someone and they're your enemy because you're selfish, have you ever been selfish in your life? That's the reason for the cross. And if you can't reason that way, well, you're being just like our buddy Jonah. So as we end today, this task to love our enemy is by no means easy. And as your brother, I know that some of you have enemies for legit reasons. I get it, get it. But could it be, and, and this is tough, but could it be, and I think this is what Jonah 4 is saying, that God has put the person or people in your life precisely as a divine invitation for you to grow and mature in your experience of God's grace. Not just receiving it, because we can receive the grace of God all day. We love it, right? But showing it to someone else who just like you doesn't deserve it. A theologian, Walter Wink, says this, the enemy is not just a hurdle to be leaped over on the way to God, speaking of an enemy that is a person. Our enemy might actually be the way to God because they reveal our deepest parts that need redemption. Whew. So pray, seek God, and ask him to give you the strength to love them. It doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them. It doesn't mean you have to hang out with them all the time, but you have to respect them as the beautiful human being that God had created them. And you have to accept the fact that God loves them and he wants them to be in his family. And if we can do that as a corporate community centered around the person of Jesus Christ, then God can really work and do some amazing things in us. So let's not like, be like Jonah and run for a life apart from God. But let's run to God in a life filled with amazing grace, mercy, and love. Amen. I guess, Robbie. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord, uh, we come to you today And we just thank you for a wonderful time of musical worship and the opportunity to read your scriptures. And we ask that you give us the strength to love others around us, especially to love our enemies. I mean, you know that it isn't easy because you experienced it here on this earth. Yet you still loved and forgave those who persecuted you. May we be more and more like you every day. And may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.